Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is John Raymond. He is the author of the novels The Half-Life, Rain Dragon, and Freebird, and the story collection Livability, and he is the winner of the Oregon Book Award. He has collaborated on six films with the director Kelly Reichardt, including Old Joy, Wendy and Lucy, Meek's Cutoff, Night Moves, First Cow, and the fourth corner forthcoming showing up. He also received an Emmy Award nomination for his screenwriting on the HBO miniseries Mildred Pierce, directed by Todd Haynes and starring Kate Winslet. His new book is Denial, which is published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. John, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. That was a mouthful. You've done a lot of impressive things there, John. and John, I met you several years ago. I was interviewing with Literary Arts for the Wardstock position. You were my host. Uh, I read all of your books before I met you then. You had a bad cold, I believe. A regular cold. This was way before COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> and how have you been since then? And how have these last few years been treating you? Uh, they, well, like everyone, they've been um, up and down, <clears throat> traumatizing. Now it's all coming back to me. That's so great. I remember that very well. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the the last few years have been um, uh, radically uh, demoralizing and inspiring and confusing and um, uh, yeah, uh, just tough. But uh, hopefully, hopefully things are starting to get a little bit better. I don't know. I hope so. And it's been a weird few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say the very least. Well, um, let's now dive into this excellent new novel, Denial. Uh, first, John, this is a climate crisis novel. Um, where do you think we are presently concerning the climate crisis? And do you believe we have time to turn this train around? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're in a better place than we were two weeks ago. You know, I think that that... Um, <laughs> Uh, whatever it is, the <laughs> Fighting Inflation Act or whatever they called it, uh, yeah. is uh, really worth celebrating. I mean, that's like a really huge, uh, obviously imperfect, but um, really, really um, helpful sort of piece of legisla- legislation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not we can turn it around, um, that is something, I mean, I'm certainly not qualified to say, but that really is the question that's at the center of this book, Denial. Um, and, and in my mind, it's an unanswered question in Denial. Um, I mean, I think for me, the, the sort of genesis of that book um, was uh, just doing some magical thinking that, in fact, yes, we can turn it around and there will be uh, uh, human and plant life uh, surviving and even thriving on earth, at least in 30 years from now. And that some of the worst, uh, worst kind of effects of, of climate change will be sort of averted, but like how we actually get from here to there, that's something I just had to close my eyes and sort of fantasize into happening. Cause I don't really know how that happens. 
Yeah. And then, of course, um, beyond that act being passed, California just uh, stated that they're going to um, make the uh, selling and purchase of gasoline-powered automobiles illegal starting in 2035, I believe. Um, Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that helps things. Hopefully it will. Um, I'll tell you, like, I bought an electric car a couple months ago, and it's changed my life. Like, it really Totally. Yeah, I got one too. Yeah, I mean, I would vote for Gavin Newsom in a second for anything right now. Like, I'm I'm so blown away by that. But yeah, we got a we got an electric car also just a few months ago, and I love it. It's like it's I love that you come home and you kind of it's like having a donkey or a mule or something. Like you have to come home and like water it and feed it and stuff. And it's like it's just a totally different relationship to the car. It's great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no i totally agree um, and me too when i lived in san francisco um gavin newsom was the mayor at the time and and he was great and um rebecca who's back there in the background at quail ridge Books, she was here um when i first got that car and it was amazing and she'll be joining us here at explore booksellers starting on monday as our assistant general manager so we're all excited about that um well john i know i want to ask you about a line from your novel And that line is, quote, every revolution becomes a bureaucracy in the end, Uh, end quote. Can you unpack this line for us, John, both as it pertains to your novel and as it pertains to the world outside of your novel, that every revolution becomes a bureaucracy in the end? (laughs) Yeah. So that line is spoken by the main character in the book, this guy, Jack, who is a uh, journalist um, and yeah, the book takes place 30 years in the future. There have been, um, uh, there's been sort of a global Green New Deal that has, um, has, has altered but not entirely transformed the world and its uh, social relationships. I mean, by and large, the world in the future that I've written is almost identical to the world that currently exists, but there are um, <laughs> some, some uh, marginal changes that have helped everything happen. So um, Jack was um, part of this movement that they called the upheavals, and uh, he's kind of ruminating on it now from a sort of uh, retrospective and slightly burned out point of view. Um, I mean, he's kind of a he's kind of a noir hero in a certain sense, you know. I mean, he's he's um, uh, yeah, living in a certain state of of disillusionment, I guess, but not entirely. I mean, he's not he's not like a hard bitten uh, you know detective or anything, but he is he has uh, his idealism has been a bit chastened. Um, but uh, and so that yeah, that quote comes early in the book, and it's him yeah, just sort of ruminating on on the the movements that happened, you know, 20 years previous. And, you know, for me, thinking about those social movements was uh, really simple because I was writing the book in like uh, 2020, you know, end of 2019 into 2020. And I could look out my window and see just massive kinds of grassroots um, uh, demonstrating going on. I mean, this, you know, Portland was got really insane and uh and it was really inspiring in a lot of ways and also really disturbing in different ways and so you know that that sort of uh disenchanted view of those of those movements was was pretty easy to channel i guess um 
Yeah, absolutely. All of my, um, or a, you know, a significant portion of my in-laws live in Portland. So um, <laughs> I remember, you know, I was following all of that stuff very closely and it was, you know, as you said, both um, invigorating and insane uh, at, at different points of time. Um, there are mentions of people in the world of your novel who feel solidarity with the earth, with the trees, with the rocks. Um, why is this uh, important and so pronounced in the world of your novel? Yeah, there's sort of, uh, these are sort of slogans that um, I invented for that movement. Um, yeah, solidarity with air, solidarity with earth. Um, and I mean, to me, that is the, um, that is the sort of ideological direction that I feel like uh, the world needs to move in. You know, I mean, it is about uh, kind of assigning humanity or at least civil rights to um, the, the other living things and elements on the planet, that there needs to be some form of, um, yeah, some, some form of, of, uh, uh, of protections, obviously, but also just uh, they need a seat at the table in a certain sense. And so that, I guess it's, yeah, it's basic like Lorax kind of uh, <laughs> thinking there, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, and, and it does go beyond like merely uh, uh, like, uh, jurisprudence kind of thing. I mean, there's a spirituality to it in a certain sense. I mean, it is like a form of animism, I guess, that I wish the world could embrace, um, which seems very wishful. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, sometimes wishes come true, John. Let's uh, keep our feet. Well, <laughs> that's, that's exactly was my thinking. I mean, we've seen how like the most disgusting and demonic kinds of reality bending have been happening, you know, mm -hmm. in the last 10 years, like it seems to work really well as far as, um, you know, fabricating some just disgusting idea about, you know, the future. So why not try it in the other direction? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, John. Um, <laughs> you <laughs> Your protagonist is a reporter, um, a newspaper reporter. Are people still reading newspapers in the future, John? And, um, you know, along those lines, would you like to take a moment to set the novel up a little bit further for our listeners? Yeah, so um, people are still reading uh, uh, newspapers. And that was another part of the sort of optimism I was projecting is that uh, journalism has continued. Um, and uh, yeah, the and as far as giving the the sort of setup, uh, the year is twenty fifty two. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the world has has gone through some some incomplete kinds of changes, uh, and part of the the upheavals this movement uh, involved Nuremberg style trials for prominent carbon criminals, so um, executives at petroleum companies and you know just various collaborators in the destruction of the earth have been. Um, have been found responsible for the um, um, the crimes against the, the crimes against life, which is sort of echoes the um, Nuremberg trials, uh, you know, um, crimes against humanity. Um, and so, uh, in the year uh, twenty fifty two, uh, this this journalist Jack uh, discovers a fugitive um, uh, carbon criminal. Um, living in Mexico underground and goes to try and unmask him. And so uh, the book is, it's kind of like a Nazi hunter story in like an eco costume. 
Um, and so the, the book is really a, a sort of a series of conversations that these two people have as the as it moves towards this this um, this unmasking. Yeah, thank you, John. I'm going to um, want to talk a little bit more about those trials after the break. But um, along the line of newspapers, one thing that I've really uh, been surprised by when I moved here to Aspen, Colorado, is that everybody here reads the newspaper. Um, when I came from Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh, North Carolina, the newspaper kind of got purchased by a conglomeration and all of the writing was outsourced and it kind of is it's not dead yet, but it's, you know, definitely um, dying. It's on its deathbed. But uh, here, you know, um, the Aspen Times, which was a big paper, has been in the news a lot lately because they had some big controversies and they have it in Aspen Daily News. And both newspapers are free. And as such, um, everybody reads them every day. It's it's unusual. Um, but really hoping... free, da free daily papers there. That's amazing. Yeah, two free daily papers. God, incredible. Um, yeah, it's great. And, you know, you can see that it that it pays off and they make their money with advertising and, and grants and everything else. But, um, you know, we may see other other places embracing that model on the way to your vision of 2052. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, the uh, Portland Oregonian, which was the largest newspaper in the Northwest um, mm -hmm. and has a really amazing history. It was it was a really good newspaper, um, also got uh, bought by these uh, you know, uh, some conglomerate from New Jersey, the Advanced mm -hmm. Corporation, I think, and they've they've been responsible for decimating a lot of the metropolitan dailies, mm -hmm. and uh, it did get uh, radically worse. They hemorrhaged a ton of people, mm -hmm. um, and but it's interesting. It has kind of it's gotten a little better in the last year for some reason. I don't know exactly why, but um, they seem to have like hit bottom. It feels like, and they're <laughs> sort of clawing back. Yeah, course correction, I guess. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you, John. Um, listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with John Raymond. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with John Raymond, author of Denial, which is published by our friends at Simon and Schuster. Uh, John, before the break, you were talking about the uh, trials that were happening with carbon executives in your novel. I believe the trials happened in the year 2032. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but here we are speaking with one another 10 years before 2032. It seems like there's plenty of evidence to have these folks stand trial right now, is there not? Uh, yeah, I would say so for sure. Uh, and, you know, uh, you and I should probably stand trial too, because, you know, the, uh, 
the production side is only half of the equation and you know our footprints are surely um uh criminal in themselves mine is uh and yeah i mean that was part of what drew me to this particular kind of moral quandary because as as fun as it would be to watch uh you know exxon and bp executives have to have their time in the barrel uh it really is a murky kind of thing because you know we're consuming a lot of stuff mm -hmm. yeah absolutely uh, consuming and wasting and all of that um moving forward john what's the story with beef in your novel uh why is uh a focus here <laughs> well uh, yeah that was like one of the um like in some ways minor but also quite major like alterations in the future which is just that socially the eating of beef has become really um de class a um and you know as probably a lot of readers understand the the, the beef industry is a giant um um uh, uh sort of engine of climate change just because it takes so much energy to raise beef and um the you know for I, I don't know probably the methane is a problem too but it's just it's not a very like um uh ecologically responsible form of eating and so um in the future yeah it's just sort of taken for granted at least amongst a certain um enlightened class and probably among the wealthier people that that this is something that is no longer no longer cool um but yeah in the book also there's a kind of uh, it's, it's uneven you know i mean uh the the book travels from the united states to mexico a few times and i think it becomes apparent that um in mexico the the sort of beef prohibition doesn't hold in the same way um and so i mean and this is the kind of thing you see already you know i mean i know plenty of like you know groovy liberal elite people that live in my neighborhood in portland oregon um you know already making that decision to to cut back on their uh meat meat uh consumption and um you know that uh so yeah really i was just trying to kind of like plot that forward and, and see that and expand yeah in the past when i was in north carolina i would have made a, a joke here about groovy <laughs> liberal people in portland but now that i haven't asked and i have no room to speak I don't <laughs> yeah all right <laughs> yeah. um well are, are you a, a vegetarian or vegan or do you have opinions on factory farming <laughs> otherwise yeah no i i'm an omnivore i eat all kinds of things um i mean i don't eat a ton of beef like that's just sort of i never have that much like i mean i am i am uh a, a total product of coastal elite liberal culture. I mean, um, multi-generations into it. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, a basic sort of health food diet is something that I grew up with and, and have never had to question. But uh, yeah, that said, it's, it's like, you know, I'm like a Michael Pollan kind of uh, eater, I guess, you know, like a little of everything in moderation. Yeah, yeah. Staying on the edges of the you know, grocery stores there. As yeah, you know. right. Yeah, I go to the organic section if I can. Um. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, one other thing, you know, that I was delighted to read about in your novel is that there are bookstores in the future yes. in 2052. Um, what is the state of literature and or the bookstore in the world of your novel, Deny? Yeah, well, that was, again, that was one of the, the, the sort of... Um, uh, 
fantasies that I was projecting uh, that in fact, 30 years in the future, people are still reading, they're still reading actual books. Uh, and they're also reading uh, the historically important books. Like, uh, you know, I mean, this is a beef I have with um, a lot of sort of science fiction, I guess, in general, and the kind of world building they do that uh, can become really quickly, really amnesiac about the sort of cultural uh, lifespan of, of um, culture, you know? And so in this future that I have imagined, people are reading books. And in fact, one of the big plot points revolves around uh, the two characters, both reading books by Mark Twain. And, um, you know, I, you know, I predict that in 30 years, uh, people will still be reading Mark Twain and he will still be sort of problematic in the way that he is now, um, but that it will still speak to people in a, in a really direct way about the American experience. I mean, as it has now for whatever, a hundred odd years. Yeah, and um, I wanna talk a little bit more about this. And one thing that I've noticed here uh, at Explore Booksellers in, in Aspen, all of the sudden we can't keep Hemingway on the shelf. Like, uh, yeah, it's going from like zero to 60 in the span of a couple of weeks. Like, I mean, I'm talking about like the major works, the short stories, the like oddball collections. We just all of a sudden we can't keep Hemingway anywhere. Um, yeah. Possibly more alarmingly, also more people coming in asking for Atlas Shrug. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My reaction, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, people are reading, people are reading. Um, yeah. but, you know, you do use your book to riff a lot um, on artists and writers like Mark Twain, like Orisco, like Diego Rivera. Um, can you tell us about this aspect of your novel and about the process or idea for you as a writer of inserting uh, art theory or analysis into a novel as a whole? Yeah, totally. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, again, this was part of just building a recognizable world where certain of these um certain of these uh, yeah, texts or, or um, artworks uh, continue to exist. I mean, a lot of the book takes place in a museum also. And, and I just, you know, I really wanted to um, just honor that idea that there is a continuity that we are going to experience in the future. And um, that, you know, humanity has managed to protect a lot of things and move them from generation to generation. And that's like part of the human, that's one of the, you know, sort of unremarkable, but actually really inspiring things that humans do. Um, and as I get older, it becomes more and more amazing, I guess, to me, as I, you know, uh, can revisit a, a painting in a, in a museum, you know, at 10 and 30 year intervals and like to start to understand that these are things that people have, have somehow against all the odds managed to protect from time and from history. Um, so yeah, I wanted that I felt like it worked within my sort of thematic worldview to like actually um, describe certain real things that currently exist. And so, uh, you know, the Mark Twain was great because um, particularly with Huckleberry Finn, um, there were, you know, the, it's, it is a, a strange friendship that arises between people. It also involves a fugitive um, from, from the law there's a certain feathering that happened with, with my own two, two unlikely friends who are living sort of a little bit outside of the law. Um, and, and I like that kind of little light kind of uh, resonance that can happen. And then, um, 
yeah, there's a big, there's a, a sort of longish scene that happens in Guadalajara where a lot of the book takes place um, in a, um, an old uh, colonial um, chapel there or a cathedral that was painted by the Mexican muralist, uh, Jose Orozco, who's like my favorite of the big Mexican muralists. And I wanted that in there because when I was a teenager, I was driving around in Mexico with a friend and I went to this particular mural that exists. It's kind of like his Sistine Chapel in a sense, like it's a, a very raw uh, folkloric, uh, you know, Mexican muralist version of a Michelangelo sort of job. And um, it, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I would be, I, I have thought about it for the rest of my life. And there was, uh, um, you know, not just a visual element to, to Orozco's work, but a literary element too. I mean, he was processing history and he was, um, you know, not exactly creating a narrative, but he was um, doing really complicated uh, political science in that, in that um, mural and in all of his murals. And they've ended up forming the way I think about stuff um, um, profoundly. Yeah, thanks. Um, I really kind of just dig that um, way of writing, of inserting, you know, conversations about art and artists or, or politicians or whoever's like you read, you know, um, uh, Canal Scards, My Struggle, and all of a sudden there's this like 300 page essay on Hitler. And, um, <laughs> yeah. But that's good. Um, yeah. And listen, um, if you are interested in, in following uh, this thread, um, we do, we will have an episode out there with the philosopher William McCaskill, who just wrote a book called What We Owe the Future about protecting um, not only the climate and the world, but also um, art and literature for, for future generations. I think that that's something. Um, worth checking out for all yeah. of you. Yeah, um, so thank you, John. Well, finally, um, I wanna ask you about time and space. Um, I've been talking with a lot of people lately about um, books as like the ultimate virtual reality technology because you know VR goggles can put you into like the body of someone but not necessarily the mind and that's what a book does um so I want to ask you about the line in in your novel um about the protagonist not traveling through space but through time via the reading of books can you unpack this for us yeah yeah I mean it's a little sort of toss off line in there um and, it, and it, it speaks to this bond that these two guys have as as readers you know they um they recognize each other both as readers and that that kind of gives the journalist a an in and and diffuses the situation and allows them to have a um a pretty freewheeling conversation for a handful of weeks um but um, yeah, I've had that same, I remember having that same uh, insight, like I remember it was in the 90s, I was reading like a William Blake poem and it was during the whole dot-com moment. And it was like, dude, like this is so much beyond anything that these like dot-com idiots are talking about. Like this is, this, this does everything they're talking about. There's nothing new to this stupid like technology that they're talking about. And yeah, and I see it, you know, I've done some like work at the, Sundance Institute for their like new frontiers program where it's like new technologies of, of storytelling and everything. Mm -hmm. And the thing you just keep bumping into that is that like the technology is really not inherently that interesting and it needs to have language and narrative in a fairly traditional way to 
to have the effect that people want to have. And it's just, there's, there's no, there's no, none of, none of these things can exist without books. I mean, it's like, they all are utterly reliant on books to survive, whether it's uh, film or VR. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, John. And thank you for writing this book and for everything you do for writers and the world of literature in uh, Oregon and beyond. Listeners, I've been speaking with John Raymond, author of Denial, which is published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jason. That was great. Once again, I would like to thank John Raymond for joining me. Copies of Denial can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm, enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.